Hello, and thank you for listening to the Total Health Podcast. My name is Rosie Piercy. I'm a chiropractor and clinic director, and I find the subject of health fascinating. In this podcast, every fortnight, we'll be discussing health from a different perspective. I hope you enjoy. Hello, and welcome to Total Health Podcast. My name is Rosie Piercy, and I'm here today with Nicole Oliver, who is a chiropractor from Newland Chiropractic Clinic. Hello, Nicole. Hello, Rosie. Lovely to have you here. Thank you, Rosie. (laughs) Excellent. Right. So a few questions about what you do. So the first one I often ask people is what made you decide to be what you wanted to be? So why did you decide to be a chiropractor? Well, I was just finishing off my A-levels and I lived in Germany at the time. So I was um, living there, born there. And my mum had a really, really bad back at the time. She'd actually injured a disc and had a trap Mm -hmm. nerve down her leg. And she happened to go and see a chiropractor. Now, at this point, I have no idea whatsoever what chiropractic was. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not that common in Germany. But as it happened, she was so bad, she couldn't even drive herself there. I was available. I drove her there, went in the room with her, mm-hmm. and I was fascinated by what this was. So I looked into it a bit more, went and observed the chiropractor who treated her for a couple of days, and about two months later, I started my chiropractic training at ACC in Bournemouth. Ah, so what was it that fascinated you about it? Well, there were no drugs involved. It was mm-hmm. quite manual. Mm-hmm. I just liked what he seemed to be doing. Um, I was quite sporty as a kid, so it sort of appealed in that sense as well. I'd always thought about doing maybe medicine, maybe physiotherapy, mm-hmm. but I'd wasn't so keen on medicine because they just seem to be dishing out drugs to people. Yeah. Um, physiotherapy, I don't know, it didn't seem quite enough for me, but chiropractic seemed to be that in-between thing that ticked all the boxes. Okay. I think that's how a lot of people come to chiropractic. I think it was a similar thing with myself in that I went to see a chiropractor and found it interesting and decided that that's what I would do. I had previously thought of physio as well. So it's that kind of that kind of area isn't it but it's like a different branch of of, I guess manual therapy but that isn't such well known definitely physio um because we went to well they call it college but it's university really isn't it um yes (laughs) although they've now changed the name because it was AACC which is Anglo-European College of Chiropractic and now it's was it AACC University College or something yes it is just to confuse well confuse us <laughs> to confuse us obviously <laughs> not the new ones um and so we were there together for five years five years wasn't it it was five years because it's quite it's quite in-depth training isn't it very much so I mean the first few years I'm sure what we did was equal to what they do on a medical degree yeah but obviously we minus, minus all the pharmacology we only did that uh, a little bit really yeah so we have the adjustment sides so the manual side and they have the, the drug side um yeah but do you how do you feel about drugs and chiropractic um this is just we weren't going to talk about this but since we've come onto it there's always that thing isn't there is should we like this sometimes comes up every year about prescribing rights for chiropractors doesn't it you know, it does should we, um, prescribe, should we not and i never know i never know how i feel about it sometimes i think it would be useful to go rather than go and see a gp here you are this is what you need have it Obviously, we'd have to have the appropriate training to be able to do that. Yeah. But then the other part of me thinks we're supposed to be drug-free. So, I don't know. Well, I my opinion is probably not what 
all other chiropractors' opinion mm. on this is, is that if we were appropriately trained mm. and we could save the patient a visit to the GP, yeah. my opinion is why not? Yeah. As my, the way I practice is I don't care what I do prescribe for the patient as long as it works for the patient. It's all yeah. about the individual. So I don't like being stuck in dogmatic philosophies or anything like yeah. that. No, I, I think want the patient to have what is right for them, whether that's drugs, manual therapy, exercise, rehab. And I don't care if it's me treating them, a physio, a nutritionist. Yeah. It's all about the individual patient. So if it came to do I want prescribing rights, well, it wouldn't hurt, but it would have to be limited to certain drugs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, obviously. And we'd have to be properly trained. Yeah. Which would be interesting having to study again. Would be, I, I think I agree with you. I mean, I had a patient the other week who had, you know, sort of a, a cervical, so a neck, a disc problem in his neck, and he was having dreadful spasms. And you know that what he needs is a few days worth of tramadol or something yeah. like that, and then to come back in and see me. And then exactly. we, can, we can start working. But when he's spasming every 30 seconds, there's a very limited amount you can do to someone in that place. And so he trots off the GP and gets his medication and then comes back and now he's doing much better. But that's just more pressure for the GP, I guess, that if we could do that. Exactly. Time. But I guess it would be an awful lot of more pharmacology we'd have to learn to, to get to that point, I guess. Um, I think a little bit. I'm not yeah. sure it would take that long. Because we've got the basic training. We did buy basic pharmacology. We did we at ACC. We know about all these different health conditions. We'd have to just learn a bit more about drug interactions and yeah. how to be sensible about it, I suppose. It'd be quite, it'd be useful. But yeah. you also remember more about the pharmacology than I did. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> you were better at that side of it than I was. Um, okay, so... You, so you've, so we both got the same degree and master's yeah. level, didn't we? And then you've gone off to do some more um, training on the more kind of neurological side of chiropractic. Is that right? Yes, that is right. So when I was at ACC, neurology was without doubt my favourite subject. And afterwards, I wanted to do a bit more training in that. So <laughs> between, what was it, 2006, I suppose, I started that properly and about 2010, I did lots and lots of seminars on mm -hmm. what's called um, chiropractic neurology. Some people call it functional neurology. And so I learned a lot about how the nervous system sort of influences how muscles work, how it processes sensory information, and a bit more about all these different conditions that are more neurologically based, mm -hmm. but that chiropractors still treat, such as yeah. migraine headaches, mm -hmm. vertigo, dizziness. Um, whiplash injuries that involve some degree of brain trauma um, all of that sort of stuff really okay because I, I went on a couple of them with you I think and it's yes you did it's very in-depth neurology isn't it yes um, the course I did was very very in-depth yes. I think I went to one and just thought I haven't got the, the time to do the online the studying around this at the moment but it is incredibly in-depth in neurology in that working out the exact way everything works, isn't it? Not just, I'm probably not explaining it very well, but um, it's... I'm explaining it fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but as you say, it's very in-depth and that's, and that's led to you practicing differently now you've got more knowledge. 
about that? Well, yes, I see a fair few patients with the more neurological conditions. I mean, I still see the regular neck pain and back pain mm -hmm. patients. And sometimes the neurology is very relevant for them as well. So if they've got a problem with, say, their cerebellum, which is the balance and coordination center of the brain, mm -hmm. that will influence their spinal muscle tone. Okay. And if there's a big imbalance between, say, the left and the right cerebellum, for whatever reason, whether that's trauma or whether they've always had that just um, like from birth or wherever, um, they could have quite an imbalance in spinal muscle tone, which mm -hmm. can predispose them to their neck pain or their back pain. And the trouble is, if you don't do something to rehab the cerebellum, mm -hmm. their muscle tone differences will always be there and they'll always be prone to flare-ups again or recurrences of their problem. And is that why maybe some people, even they've done all their core rehab, which I guess is a more traditional thing you do, as you'd say, go and work on your core muscles, they've done all that, but yet they're mm. still having recurrent problems, perhaps because the information their brain is sending, their spinal muscles isn't good enough. So yes, exactly. That's, that's a good sort of general explanation of that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. And, and you're now lecturing in this, aren't you? You have neuro seminars, which people like chiropractors, like myself, go along to, to learn about how we can take some of this knowledge that you have to use on our patients. Yes, exactly. So since, oh my word, when was it? 2012, mm -hmm. we started properly with neuro seminars. And what we're trying to do with that is take the neurological inform information and try and make it as clinically relevant for chiropractors mm -hmm. and osteopaths and physios as possible okay. and teach them the basics of that that they can then use to treat their patients with. Okay. And it's, it's been going well off. I've done several conferences, national and international ones as well. So I'm enjoying that as well as my normal day-to-day -day practice. I think it's really taken off you because I know that as myself, I, I find neuro neurology quite fascinating, but I can't, I don't, I would say, I'd, I'd like to say this just because I don't have the time, but I find the understanding of the learning of it much harder than you perhaps, or you're just more dedicated at working at it than I am one of the two. Um, but to go to your, one of your um, courses and have it explained to me in an easier way, that makes it much more accessible for a lot of people. Yeah. Do you think? Well, that was always my aim, is to try and make it accessible and easier to understand with the courses that I teach. And, and it is quite, I must admit, because I went on your headache one you did at the ACC, wasn't it, last year? Mm. Um, and that was really interesting, um, particularly the sort of supplement side and things like that, that you don't, that I don't necessarily always think about, you know, if it's sort of adjustment side is, I guess, comes more easily to chiropractors to adjust this, adjust that, do this exercise but looking at more of the dietary stuff is something that I don't do enough of perhaps or is a secondary thought to me perhaps? Yes I mean that all comes into it because the brain needs its nutrition you can use different supplements to very slightly change um, brain function I mean when we're talking about headaches mm -hmm. magnesium is a huge one because mm -hmm. magnesium is what's called a natural calcium channel blocker. Okay. And so before we get to into what's, what's oh, I'm not going to <laughs> the calcium channels, they may help the nerves work well is that right well you've got calcium channels and sodium channels in okay. the nerves now if the calcium channels open the nerve is prone to being overstimulated okay and in migraine headaches what tends to happen is you get a lot of nerves just firing off spontaneously okay. usually the calcium channels are involved in this 
spontaneous overactivation of nerves. And that's what gives you the migraine aura, for example. You know, the flashing lights that people see or the tingling that people experience. Ah. And if you can stop that from happening in the first place by sort of blocking the calcium channels naturally with magnesium Mm because it naturally sits on it as a plug, then that prevents the aura from triggering, which then as a secondary effect prevents the... um, the headache phase of the migraine from triggering as well and that's been it's been researched quite well that magnesium helps a lot of people not everyone with no. um migraine headaches there's never a one size fits all is there because if it was it'd be really easy wouldn't it <laughs> it'd be lovely it would be super easy but no that's just one aspect of it but yeah that was just a simple explanation of why dietary stuff can have a nice influence on people's brains because i think general medicine is starting to think more about um not so much been obviously the dietitians have always thought about diet but i think they're now more looking at like you have functional um what's it called functional medicine thank you and that's more about dietary stuff isn't it oh very much so now i'm certainly no expert on that um yeah but it's quite quite an interesting uh, another interesting way of looking at things isn't it so what does so chiropractors are known for adjustments which are oh if you don't know what an adjustment is it's where we what's it how how would we expect? So if you're if you have a say a problem in your back, we would put you into a certain position to find a joint that we thought wasn't functioning properly. And we yes. just put a an adjustment, which is a, what a manipulation. Would a manipulation. Be High velocity, low amplitude, that's what they call it, isn't it? Exactly. Thrust um, through the joint to improve its function. Um now when we when we were training, there was an awful lot of the joints not in the right place kind of stuff. Do you yeah, think? or it's stuck stuck a lot of stuck and a lot of um talking about malpositioned that's malpositioned subluxed which is a whole yeah, but they didn't like saying that anymore by the time we were training so that was no. really going out of fashion it still is in fashion a bit for some people isn't it but some people it is, do you yeah. use subluxed i never i never ever say that word if i can help <laughs> <it>. <laughs> so for those of you who maybe not chiropractors um subluxation was the traditional um philosopher work but how would you describe the traditional world that was used for a joint that was not moving as well i guess or not functioning properly that wanted to be adjusted when it was yeah, but it was more than that because they were claiming that that joint it wasn't just stuck mm-hmm. and out of place it was also impairing what they called the flow of energy into the nervous system or something along those lines i've forgotten all of that stuff but it was not just not moving it was having a global effect on global. the nervous system and the body and so the idea was you adjust you adjust this slub, sublux joint and therefore the nervous system will function properly and everything yes works. and it restores health and to put it, it's very heal itself better basic. but this is, this is like um this idea was from what was it 1895 yeah exactly was it 1986 <laughs> we could never remember because it was the alarm yeah. over our house wasn't it wasn't and it? i got it wrong <laughs> <laughs> yes i got it wrong listeners and had to sit for half an hour with a very loud burglar alarm going off until someone phoned me or texted me to tell me what the actual burglar alarm was. yes Yes, that was funny. <laughs> but anyway, that idea was from right back then. So it was a bit like drilling holes in people's skulls to let out the pressure to relieve mm-hmm. headaches or leeches or um, bloodletting. It was along the lines of that, wasn't it? Really? Yeah. There was no proof for it. It was just someone's idea. 
And also, I guess, it, it, when we're trying to talk to other healthcare professionals, particularly medical doctors, a sublux joint is something very different in the medical world, isn't it? Well, it's a partial so, dislocation. So exactly. So if you say to a medical doctor, I've just adjusted a sublux joint, they're going to think you're a complete idiot, because why would you do that to a joint that's dislocated or partially dislocated? Exactly. Um, so, yeah, it's, I tend not to use it ever, I don't think. Apart from when I'm talking no. to other chiropractors about why I don't <laughs> Um, but um so anyway so and there's also a lot also going back to what we were saying before about um that there was describing disc problems and nerve problems as oh you were standing on a hose pipe and the water couldn't get through and which i don't do you use that explanation much no not at all i mean i if if someone has a disc problem i usually sort of explain to them that the disc bulging out or herniating or slipping, whatever term they like to use, mm-hmm. is probably causing more inflammation than direct pressure on the nerve, mm-hmm. especially if it's a fairly mild one. That sort of reassures them that the nerve isn't completely squashed. And also yeah. that's what they found to be the actual truth of the matter. And that in a lot of cases, it's more the inflammation that's generated because the disc material the body doesn't come in contact with, so it mounts an immune response to it. So it goes and attacks itself, exactly. And so you get all this inflammation, and that inflammation is fluidy, yucky substance Mm -hmm. that goes and sensitizes pain nerves um, and irritates the nerve through the fluid pressure. But then the patient also understands that if they get moving better, if we can get the joints moving better, if we can reduce the inflammation, Mm -hmm. the pressure will come off the nerve yeah and then they'll get better rather than thinking oh they've got a permanent issue because that disc has leaked out onto the nerve and will always be sat on that nerve because it's quite rare to get discs that bad is it the whole yeah you don't you don't get them that frequently well we don't see them that often because they're that bad it's usually you know yes (laughs) straight surgery do not pass go but um, (laughs) and then because people then get obviously the sort of pins and needles and numbness or the kind of hot wax dripping type feelings down their legs with, with disc problems. And that's because the nerve's being irritated, isn't it? And it's not, yes. it's not feeling things right. Exactly. Which exactly. is, it feels weird because it almost feels like as a patient, you, you're thinking, I guess I used to think it's, well, it's because that's what's happening, but it's not what's happening. It's just the brain's getting scrambled with its information. Absolutely. I mean, all that inflammation stuff, is messing with the nerve's function and it's probably putting some direct pressure on it. Yeah. But it's not the disc pushing on it, it's the inflammation pushing on it. And then it will scramble all the signals that you feel um, from the nerve back to the brain and, yeah, it gives you all sorts of nice sensations. Or not. <laughs> <laughs> and then cause those nerves can take a really long time to heal, can't they? Oh, yes. Apparently, once you've sort of damaged a nerve, it heals at about one millimetre a day. Yeah, so go do the maths. Do yeah. the maths on that one. You know, if you've got a nerve all the way down to your big toe, yeah. you've got it all the way out back up to your spine. That's so quite a few days. And go, I reckon. <laughs> a number of days. Let's see if we're right. I've never measured anyone's leg, but I've told this to patients and it's put it into perspective for them. Exactly. Uh, so it's what I often say to patients as well. Again, I've never measured a leg, but now I'm I'm <laughs> tempted <laughs> to see. And we can have it like, can you beat the... Because things like um, nutrition and whether you do your exercises and whether you have treatment or not, that will all encourage healing. You know, oh, of course, yes. Sleep, that's a good one as well. Sleep is useful. 
yeah. apparently. <laughs> <laughs> so what when we're doing an adjustment, what, what are we actually doing to the nervous system or to the, the body or the brain when we're doing it? If we're not kind of putting the joint back in place, what how would you describe it to patients what we're actually doing? Yes, I mean, what I tend to say, and the evidence for this is getting more and more, but it's still a bit sketchy. So this we, is not... We do need more evidence, don't we? We do. We need more studies to show exactly what we do. Um, but my idea is based on what I know of neuroscience, what mm. I know where nerves connect into the brain from mm. the from the what that you call periphery, so from the spine, for example. So when we get a joint moving, mm-hmm. or when we sort of quickly stretch a joint, at the same time, we're stretching the muscles around that joint. Because especially in the spine, you've got these little what are called intrinsic muscles, very mm-hmm. deep um, in the back. And they are stretched quite considerably if you go and move the spine. Mm-hmm. They are full of what are called mechanoreceptors. Okay. And when you fire off these receptors they send a signal into the spinal cord that gets transmitted up to the brain Mm -hmm. you also get receptors within the joint capsule itself and they also send up signals to the brain okay so as the signal goes up to the brain it goes to the sensory areas of the brain and that can then get relayed to the motor areas of the brain so it can change how the muscles function by the brain as a result of quickly stretching this joint also you get some local effects that if you quickly stretch a muscle by manipulating or adjusting a joint that will reflexively usually relax that muscle Mm -hmm. and allow a bit more joint motion to occur so there's what you call a segmental effect which is at the area where you're adjusting and Mm -hmm. then you get a brain effect which is the sensory nerves coming up to the brain and then different output of the brain if you like like the movement effects coming back down to the muscle okay so it's quite it's very technical when you say it like that you can you can, you can understand why people say we're moving just moving joints because that's easier for people to understand even if it's not it, true technically it is easier for people to understand um then i mean there's also this sort of what you call the pain gating effects that okay. then happen so if you get a joint moving and if you activate these non-painful mechanoreceptors mm-hmm they get priority in the spinal cord over the, the pain nerves, if you like. Okay. So you almost block the pain signals by encouraging the movement okay. signals to come through more. And then if you get better, um, say, muscle tone from mm-hmm. the brain firing back down to the muscles, that muscle tone in itself will trigger off non-painful um, influences into the brain, which will also block pain. And that's why people t- we say to people to keep moving, isn't it? Exactly. The more movement through the joint, the more mechanoreceptors yeah. increases pain signals. And if you also, specifically, if you activate the movement area of the brain, the motor cortex, mm-hmm. that in itself sends signals down to some pain-blocking areas, very technical term, yeah. in the brain, that also have an influence on pain perception. So you've got several bits in the brainstem which are involved in pain modulation. And if you activate them by activating the motor cortex, mm-hmm. you will also block pain signals um, okay. coming through. It will modulate itself, which is very clever. It is so very clever. Movement is very, very good. Whether you're creating movement at a joint by adjusting it or just encouraging global movement by the patient keeping active, um, it's all going to have a good effect on pain. 
Because I think I suppose I find the one that I find most is if you adjust someone's lowest part of someone's neck, their yeah. chest muscles often relax quite a lot instantly. Yeah, exactly. And I find it that's the one that patients tend to be the most kind of impressed with because you've I've, I do quite a lot of soft tissue work before mm. I adjust someone's neck and particularly a lot of pain just to calm it down but so they'll they'll know that their joints are a bit well sorry their muscles are a bit more relaxed and then you adjust their neck and they go oh yeah that's a, that's amazing or that feels so much looser or yeah. and then, and then that they, could, sorry that could be a reflex effect from mm. just locally getting the joints moving better but also probably a central effect by the brain that it's helping that muscle relax. So it's quite, and then, then you sit them up and they do their neck motion and they can see more, they can turn their heads and that's, yeah. you know, it's, and then that's increasing the movement that they're getting into that joint to, to keep that positive loop, isn't it? Exactly. Because you think it's got the instantaneous effects of manipulating a mm-hmm. joint. You've also got the long-term effects because now the joint's moving a bit better. So mm-hmm. you're getting more of these non-painful signals into the nervous system which then, again, blocks the pain signals. And so do you think it matters hugely which joint that you adjust? Because um, we always yeah. used to do, do you remember we have to do, it's a, it's a posterior inferior male position. <laughs> yeah. I don't use those terms anymore particularly. But a lot of it, I don't know, I don't know how you find which joints you adjust, but a lot of it is motion palpation, isn't it, which is... You know, well, some people use that or static palpation or just feeling for the muscle tone around the joints. But whatever indication you use, I, I mean, there's no hard and fast evidence for this yet, I don't mm-hmm. think. But I'm not convinced that you have to be that specific. Because we know that um, palpation is very, um, what's, it, what's the word, interpractitional, unreliable. Yeah. unreliable, isn't it? So, you know, you get three people in the room and three people will find a different joint that needs adjusting because it's not exactly. reliable. So therefore, does it, because people, chiropractic has generally good success rate for things like this. So yes. Does it matter if I adjust C5, 6 on the right or C3, 4 on the left? Well, okay. The neck, we can talk about that as a separate example. Okay. I think if you're going in the low back, yeah, I'm not sure it matters. Mm-hmm. Sort of mid-back, low back. I really don't think if you're one or two segments above or below, it really doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think the major effect is stimulating the nervous system and creating a rapid stretch through muscles which then reflexively relax so personally I don't think that we have to be very specific Okay. the neck is slightly different Mm -hmm. because when you adjust the neck you're creating um, also what's called a vestibular stimulation so you're stimulating the ear canals that signal balance and some other receptors within the ear that signal balance. Mm -hmm. And if you stimulate them too powerfully on one side versus the other, if you've got an imbalance in that cerebellum that I was mentioning earlier, you might actually make that worse possibly. The other problem is um, the neck has a very, very high density of these mechanoreceptors that I was on about. So if you adjust the neck, you get a massive, massive stimulation into the brain, Mm -hmm. which can be, brilliant for the patient and completely sort them out but also if a patient is what we call a bit sort of metabolically fragile okay so what does that mean metabolically well i was just about to explain yeah. so, what that means is either they're just having a bad day and they mm. they're tired they've not eaten well their nerves just don't have quite the fuel and 
Resilience? Yeah, resilience to cope with a lot of stimulation that day. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know what it's like. Yeah. Not specifically you, but anyone. <laughs> but you, I do. Really, <laughs> you probably do. <laughs> you know, you have a really bad hangover. Yeah. You're feeling a bit fragile and then the light's just really, really bright. So too much well, noise is upset you. Mm-hmm. Or people are just talking too loudly yeah. at you or something <laughs> like that. So maybe the nerves are just having a bit of a hangover because they're tired and not working well. (laughs) Then there are other people whose nervous systems, they just don't work too well because of other factors. Either they've got something like diabetes, where the blood sugar spikes and drops, Mm -hmm. um, making their nerves less resilient. Mm -hmm. Or they've got a condition like fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome, those sorts of things. Mm Or they've had a traumatic brain injury, which is creating inflammation within the brain. And they might just not be able to handle a massive amount of stimulation. Mm-hmm. And because when you put that into the nervous system, then their nerves just cannot cope with it. And it, instead of having then a positive effect on the nervous system and on pain mm-hmm. modulation and improving the motor commands that come out from the brain for the better, it actually just makes the brain not function at all well and this is when people can get the bad reactions to treatment yeah so they might feel really really sore they might have a horrible headache they might feel sick and dizzy after yeah. treatment. so when that happens you think well was that a bit too much for them yeah. I mean it's very common for people to just feel a bit sore because you've been digging your thumb yeah. into a muscle and you kind of bruised them a bit but that should clear very quickly after treatment you know they wake up the next day feel a bit horrible But then usually by the following day, they're absolutely fine. But the ones that come and see you and they've had a headache for three days and feel sick and dizzy after treatment, that's a good indication. That was maybe a bit too much for them. Too much. Do a bit less next time. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. (laughs) There's a tendency that you just do the same thing again and then they stop coming because who's going to come if you feel dreadful after that? You know, I wouldn't. So it's it's a kind of sensible way of doing it I often do less on the first treatment than I would do normally just to see exactly that's that's a sensible thing to do just go in there gently to start with and then build it up and particularly because if they're really sore you've already spent I don't know half an hour examining the bit that's sore they probably don't want a massive amount of treatment on that area afterwards because otherwise they're gonna feel like they've been run over by a bus or something definitely or done 10 rounds with Mike Tyson yeah I've had people say that about me and I'm like but Yeah, because you're about six foot five and weigh 20 stone, don't you? (laughs) Mm, Of course. (laughs) But but not very often, thankfully, but usually in a jovial way. But um, okay, so we're getting more evidence behind what we do. Do, do, What kind of evidence do you think we just need to be more, as a chiropractic profession, more organised in getting research done? We do. uh, it's, a, it's a lousy excuse, but it's difficult because it's underfunded. Yeah. That's a big, big problem. Is that... Because there's no drugs. There's nothing to... Apart from the chiropractic treatment, there's nothing to sell in it, is there? There's no drug no, pharmacy behind it. And so that we don't get massive sponsorship from the pharmaceutical companies who obviously want to develop new drugs and things like that. And there are a few PhD places within mm-hmm. the chiropractic profession, but... They're paid so badly. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so it doesn't really motivate people that much to want to go into research unless they really don't like clinical practice. Or well, they love research. Yeah, or they really, really love research. Which is never me. Um, <laughs> but because there's not many of us, are there, Eva? Is it like less than 3,000 chiropractors in the UK or something like that? I don't know. It must be something like that. Which for the, for the amount of... I was going to say noise we make, but do you know what I mean? Yes. Quite a small profession compared to the number of osteopaths. There's many more osteopaths, aren't there? Yes, and loads and loads and loads more physios. Yes, many, many more physios. Um, So we're quite a small profession, really. So maybe we just need to grow, and that would... Well, we we do, but also we need to be more organised. I know the chiropractic institutions, they are doing research, Mm -hmm. but there's so much to research, and a lot of it isn't just about how chiropractic works Mm. the main thing is for them is to show that it works rather than how it works because if we show that it works it becomes more recognized within the mainstream health system yeah gps probably don't care how it works they just care if it works sort their patients out if they were to send them to us and so that's what a lot of the focus has been on Mm. um showing that it's effective but not really showing what it is we do because i think i think it is changing now that we're not seen so much as weirdy beardy therapists now no. do you think well, some people uh, still see us like that but not for the most part i mean most chiropractors are well they're ethical they're evidence-based they do a good job with their patients um well like in any profession there are the sort of I don't know, the, the fringe, the black sheep or whatever you want to call them. I but then m- most of them would be operating. I don't know. I suppose I like to think most people that operate are working in the, that they have their patients' best interests at yes. heart. Oh, for the, the vast, vast majority. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Cause I think, I don't know, I guess a lot of people worry about seeing a chiropractor and seeing them forever. I think, mm. And I don't know if that did that come across from America from having massive that they had tons of insurance, so people did see chiropractors forever because it didn't cost them any money. I don't know. I'm not sure where, it where came that from. came from, but well, it has been like that though to some extent. Mm. But, I mean, I don't like that at all. There's sort of two types of patients really. I, the ones who have just acutely injured themselves, yeah. and they normally get better somewhere between four to seven treatments something like that and they're fine yeah you know I'm quite happy to discharge them then there are the ones where their problem is caused by say work posture for example and what I do with them I have this discussion with them that I'm going to loosen their joints I'm going to make their muscles function better Mm. but what they've got to do is change their posture start doing some exercise to offset the effects of sitting at their desk for eight hours a day. Mm-hmm. And if they do all that, they'll probably be okay. Mm. But because they're still doing the thing that they've always done, yeah, um, it might be that it tightens up again. And in yeah. that case, they can come and see me once in a while, maybe once every three months just to loosen things up. And mm. if they find that's beneficial, they can keep doing that for as long as they want to. Yeah, I've never put any pressure on them to sell no. them a really long treatment program or anything like that. 
No, I think I'm the same. I mean, you have your patients, like you have, you know, you have your 21 year old athlete who comes in because they've sprained a joint and you adjust them once and they walk off the bench and you don't see them again for three years yeah. because they've done that. And then you have the ones you say take four to seven treatments or something to get better. And then I don't know if you have patients like they go for a phase of their life. So they have really little children mm-hmm. and they're doing that, that constant lifting, carrying, yes. which is exhausting for the yes. back. And they're getting no sleep and all that other stuff that affects their life and their health. And you might see them. I don't know, monthly, two monthly for several years. And then their kids get to five or six. You don't lift them up as much. And then you don't see them for, you know, years because they don't need you anymore because they're they're better. Exactly. They haven't got the stress anymore that's causing the problem. But It has to be about what the patient needs all the time. That's, That's what it boils down to. Have you noticed there's an interesting trend that I've observed Mm -hmm. lately, people losing weight, now a significant amount of weight, usually like a stone plus, Mm -hmm. they're getting back pain. Oh, I've not seen that. Have you had a few of those? I've had a few of them and not just like two or three, but more like eight, nine, ten of them, something like that, over just over the last year or two who've lost a significant amount yeah. of weight, not really had any major problems before, and now they're getting back it's problems. better. Well, my theory on that, it might be completely off, but um, as they lose fat, they also lose muscle, unless they're mm. doing a lot Excellent. of exercise to combat this. But if they're mm. losing it through diet alone, that loss of muscle is probably predisposing them to back sprain, strain injuries. Yeah, that would make sense. Yeah, I'll just look out for it. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just thinking there. You can't see me thinking over. over <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, because I've heard this other treatment thing of, of buying rather than buying, saying you're going to need six treatments or mm. so many treatments. Obviously, this is my idea. It's come from America, and they tend to do, I think, generally more treatments than generally, generally. Um, of of buying. A block of if you like time of with the chiropractor right. so rather than saying I'm going to see you 10 times in the next six weeks or something yeah. you might say right you're going to give me x amount of money yeah. and you will have as much treatment as you need in the next 10 weeks okay I don't know what I think about it I don't know because in some ways you have that patient that reacts badly or isn't getting as well quite as well as you'd like. Mm-hmm. So you think actually if I could just throw in another treatment and they haven't got to worry about why they're having to have this extra treatment or what it's costing them, that they might do a bit better. Or you have patients that stop treatment, maybe what you think is maybe one or two treatments too soon mm-hmm. because they don't want to spend any more money on the treatment and they'd get better. But then I don't know how you would work it that people wouldn't feel they needed to come in for treatment every day or if they only had six treatments over that time that they'd be undersold or oversold or what have you? I don't know. It's it's a very different way of looking at it. It is. I don't, I really don't know. Um, Just to throw that out there because I I heard it the other week and I was like, they were saying it's like buying a, if you go to a solicitor to do something, they say it's going to cost this much money and they do three years in that time. It's that kind of same principle but I don't know why. It would be difficult to get it right, wouldn't it? The estimate of how much you need to charge them. Yeah. Because everyone responds differently to treatment. So I don't know. 
No, I don't know either. I know what I, I know what would end up happening. I would completely underestimate it all the time because I didn't want to overcharge them. <laughs> yeah, that's what I would do. I would end up just seeing them too many times. Like, oh, they've had like twice the amount of treatment that they they would have paid for normally. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that's that's what I could see happening. I don't know. I'm not sure. I would I would do that. I, I guess the problem is because it's private. The, yeah, it's private healthcare, isn't it? Um. A lot of people in this country just aren't used to having to pay for treatment. No. It would be so much easier if they, if it was just funded by the NHS or by the insurance companies or something, and we could just do what we thought was needed yeah. for the patient. But that would never happen anyway. Cause, it would never happen. Because the insurance companies are reducing what you can do anyway, and the NHS yeah. hasn't got any money. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> for the really important yeah. things, let alone us. But, exactly. Um, so... So chiropractic philosophy, we've kind of talked about this a bit, has changed quite a lot, hasn't it, do you think? From being, the, as we were talking about, the kind of sublux joint. and Because mm-hmm. D.D. Palmer, I think, was he a magnetic healer to start? I think he was, yes. Lots of yeah. weird, weird stuff. Um, and now we're, we are moving to more of an evidence-based profession. Yeah. We are an evidence-based profession, a lot of us. And, I mean, for instance, as we are saying, our old college is now doing what's it, ultrasound degrees in ultrasound, is it, as well? And sports science. And yes, sort of really, exactly. Because that's kind of... Because we chiropractors were taking x-rays, haven't they, as yes. part of what we do, which makes us, I guess, a bit different from osteopaths and physios who often can read the x-ray but don't tend to learn to take them. Yes. Undergraduates. And that was only because X-ray came out at the same time as chiropractic was invented, I guess. And so. Yeah, it's just always been part of the profession somehow. But a lot of chiropractors these days don't even have X-ray facilities. No, I don't. Do you have X-rays now? No. Still? No. I just send them to their GP. And they're normally quite good. They just send them up to the hospital nowadays. Because I guess that a lot of that X-raying was part of the old philosophy, wasn't it, of seeing what your spine's doing in terms yes of- they used to do what are called full spine x-rays mm. which just to see the whole alignment i mean we don't do that anymore now you we wouldn't only- get wouldn't pass the radiological control thing no, you definitely <laughs> and then to re-x-ray six weeks later to see if it changed yeah but that's the thing there's no evidence that it does no no exactly no we just x-ray for pathology now if we're worried about a fracture yeah. whether there's anything horrible going on with bones no I'm the same I mean I think when I was worked at the clinic in Oxford and we had x-ray then it was useful sometimes to be able to say to people look that bit of arthritis or this thing is what's causing you. And, and patients quite like that don't they to be able to go oh they do that's the thing that's causing it but mm-hmm. then the whole thing about x-rays will it change what you're going to do exactly probably not so although it's nice for people to see it's not yes but then there's a big problem with that because there's no evidence that the severity of the arthritis correlates to the severity of their pain so if you've now shown them some wear and tear some arthritis on the x-ray they're going to assume that their problem will be permanent because Mm. obviously you can't reverse arthritis so in their head they've already um, changed their pain modulating pathways to not work so well. Really? Yes. And the same with the MRI scan. Because a lot of disc bulges on MRI are quite asymptomatic, and yeah. they don't correlate with the patient's symptoms. Exactly. 
if you go and show a patient that their spine is full of disc bulges, they're going to not have a good response and they're going to even subconsciously believe that their back should hurt because of what's in there. And so it's not a good thing. To show them. Ooh, no, not. My notification's going off. Sorry, that was me beeping. I don't know what it was. I thought, yeah. Apologies, listeners. I thought I turned everything off. Um, yeah, so even though they like to see it, actually, because it, it may not be helpful for them to exactly. actually see it long term, because although a lot of arthritis is a chronic condition that, that won't change what's mm. there, you can still manage some aspects of it to make it more painful, less painful. Yes, absolutely. And some people can live for years with some arthritis and some joints and not feel it at all. It's interesting, isn't it? Mm. So it's the whole psychological aspect of pain management is huge. And I think all the healthcare professions are beginning to realise this more and more. And we've got to use that as best we can with patients. So it's really important to to use that in, in the words that you say. And, and exactly. I, I'm, I'm trying to be more, I guess, more mindful about stuff. And often it's not the main things you say. It would be something silly that you'll exactly. say as a side comment that you won't even think about that could affect someone in what Absolutely. you say. Um, and there's obviously the whole placebo effect as well of telling people what will happen. You know, mm. you might be sore after treatment. The pain will move this way. Because obviously you have, say, disc problems and and ridiculopathies we want the pain to move back to the back don't we and out yes we do and so you said this will you know you'll this will happen and you'll feel worse but if it's doing if it's coming up your leg then that's a good thing yes and then they go oh yeah and you said it would happen and they, yes. then they like that because it's you know whereas if you don't tell them they're going to be sore then it's a surprise to them you know yes and they say oh my leg's better but my back's so much worse now and then you turn around and say good and good <laughs> Yes. <laughs> feel good but it will be good <laughs> um but no it also it's just your whole mannerism mm. as well if you're positive not yeah. even just what you say but how you act towards a patient how reassuring you are that whatever they've got isn't so bad really to yeah them to exercise yeah well when it comes to placebo some people see placebo as negative it's a real positive thing that we should enhance as much as we possibly can. I think I know, did you have watched that, is it Trust Me, I'm a Doctor program where they were talking about placebo effect and the doctor on there was saying, oh, well, we use it as much as we can. Why would you not use it? If you know that, if, if you can know you can say stuff that will make people feel better, why would you not, you know? Absolutely. You know, exactly. use everything you have. <laughs> That's why. Very much so. I mean, the placebo effect, you can explain that through neuroscience. Yeah. And so it's real. It's a yeah. real thing. Why wouldn't we use it? I mean, we, we, we are pretty sure that we're changing or influencing brain function with our adjusting. Mm-hmm. So why don't we influence brain function with how we act and what we say to a patient? Same think, thing. Exactly. I think also allowing people to talk about, because pain, pain will be one thing that brought people to treatment. It's usually the motivator. But also the second motivator is the stuff they're not doing. That's the biggest motivator, I'd yeah. say. It, they come, come, come close together, don't you? In that, you know, they, yeah. they had pain, it stopped them from doing this, and then something will happen and they'll go, oh, I need to sort this out. And often allowing people to be open about how it's affecting them mentally. Yes. You know, and giving them space to say, um, I think it's something I'm trying to do more now is trying to pick up on, because people are often a bit embarrassed, aren't they? To mm. say, actually, I'm really depressed about this. 
mm. or um you know I've had someone with a really really long-term problem and they've said you know I felt suicidal over this mm. and just say well actually that's okay and it's good that you've told me that this and we yeah. can and it's and if you've had a problem for many many years it's affected your life it, it's probably a reasonable thing to feel that upset about it we just need to make sure that you manage that you know that you go seek help yeah. and that kind of thing but to say it's okay to be slightly depressed that you're back so bad you haven't been able to go to work for eight weeks is normal yeah well really. what I tend to do and I think patients like this I take it away from it being their own weakness and make it a neuroscientific thing basically yeah so what I say to them is that when you're in pain, the fight and flight bit of the nervous system ramps up. And when mm-hmm. that ramps up, it actually shuts down the bit of the brain that needs to function well for you to be happy, which is the frontal lobes. Yeah. And that's, that's proven. You know, when you've got a saber-toothed tiger chasing you, <laughs> you don't want to think, oh, is this a friendly pussycat? Or should I maybe run away? You don't have time. You'll get eaten. So we're distracted by the pretty butterfly that's flying. <laughs> you say you don't want the frontal lobe to kick in when you're in a fight and flight mode and pain puts you straight into that fight and okay. flight mode. So it's normal for the frontal lobe to be shut down. And if the frontal lobe doesn't work, you tend to be depressed, yeah. anxious, irritable, can't Rumpy. concentrate properly. Yeah. Rumpy. Yeah. All of that stuff. So I just explain this to patients very, very simply. Mm. And then say, Oh, so it's the pain that's making me a horrid person to be around right now. And it's making me depressed, yeah. it's making me anxious. Oh, that's okay then. So we need to work on the pain to get better. And already then they stop worrying about their mental state. Exactly. They just focus on getting better. Exactly. And I often find that when people come in, do you find pics particularly with men, they've had, for instance, a very bad back. So mm-hmm. they've not shaved for weeks mm. you know and they're coming in wearing on the, the easiest clothes they have to put on flip-flops in the winter i tend to find is a, <laughs> sign of a very bad bag um and then and you great see, jogging bottoms exactly <laughs> and then you see them uh, a few a few times and then you walk out into reception and you won't recognize them really because yes. they've gone to work they're wearing a suit they've shaved they've got the hair done you know they they look more like themselves normally and it's like oh you're look, you know you're looking much better because exactly ability to do the things that makes them normal and when you take that away from people that's when they do get miserable about things and it becomes a big part of their life doesn't it the pain and then as you get that go away they can get the rest of their lives back which I mean a lot of people they they come in once they can't do whatever hobbies it is that they really love so a lot of guys come in when their golf swing starts oh yeah when they start you know their handicaps threatened (laughs) (laughs) exactly but it's so true that's really what more guys than women, I think, are motivated by yeah. not being able to do the stuff that they really enjoy doing. Whereas women, I find, tend to be more, you know, they can't do the stuff with the kids or they can't, they, yeah. you know, they, they've got, well, I'm going to be very sexist in this statement, they've got a lot on them anyway. And it's only when they really can't function that yes. they come in and go, yeah, I've not been able to do this for six weeks or eight weeks or I've had exactly. had back pain since I had my child five years ago, yeah. but now it's got really bad. <laughs> I find a lot of that stuff is trying to say, and I know I was guilty, I still am guilty that I've got two young children, of, of not looking after yourself. And yes. mums particularly are very good at putting themselves beneath everyone else, including the cat, you know. Exactly, of <laughs> In terms of who gets looked after. <laughs> Sometimes it's, it's, 
because some chiropractors go into life coaching and stuff like that don't they because of yes uh, I mean I, I don't think I'd necessarily want to do that but sometimes you do feel like people need a bit of you know changing yeah. how they look at themselves mentally oh big time absolutely yeah absolutely. they don't well, value themselves enough Exactly. Where I work here at Total Health, we've got many different therapists and I've started referring a lot to a meditation teacher. Mm-hmm. For people, you know, people who look like you can tell the under thing of their problem is the massive amount of stress they're carrying around with them. Yes. Or they'll say, some of them can quite open and say, this is where I carry my stress is in my low back. And it's yes. like, well, all the adjustments in the world are not <laughs> going to solve this problem unless we sort out the stress side of it. And that's, that's actually had yeah. really good results to do that. Or to send them to a counsellor or something so they can talk about. Yes. yes sometimes, yeah. Yeah, we're currently mm-hmm. um, sort of in the process of setting up a multidisciplinary healthcare practice, and we are going to have counsellors working. It's so with good us. to do because you can just and you have those patients, practitioners, yeah, start spilling stuff out at you, and you're like, "This is not my area to deal with anything more than basic common sense." and yes. safe kind of thing and yes. so it's nice to have to go here's a card make an important <laughs> perception <laughs> well they just come into your office sit down and cry yeah okay <laughs> that's you, that's not easy no but you find that you find out with patients you see regularly the ones that you do see regularly that you can tell with them if something's not right oh yes either they're not saying anything just by how their neck is or or what have just you. the way they look and the way they're yeah, I don't know. I there's this horrible one where I just walked into the reception area mm. to go and fetch the next patient, yeah. and just by the way she was sat there, and the way she the look on her face, because I knew about her mother, mm. I knew that her mother had died even before she told me. Yeah, it was just horrible. But you can you can tell patients that you regularly see, you just know that there's something up. Yeah, something up. I often had the opposite thing of happy things, of thinking, she's pregnant. Oh, I've done that a few times. <laughs> <laughs> not saying anything, and then they'll say after five minutes, oh, by the way, I think I might be pregnant. And I had one patient that her back, her pelvis changed. Her pelvis yeah. felt completely different, and I was like, she's pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> I had one. She came into the room, and I sort of looked at her and said, yeah, you, you look different. And then a few minutes later, she says, oh, yes, I am pregnant. And she said, it was weird. You looked at my stomach when I walked in the room. <laughs> I didn't know I'd done that. <laughs> bizarre what you can pick up on, isn't it? I don't know. There's some weird subconscious stuff that goes on that I don't understand. No, I don't either. But I wonder how, I wonder if that's how other, something more other sort of empathetic therapies work, you know, like the kind of. Reiki type stuff is you just have people who are very empathetic. Is it empathetic? Do you know the word I'm trying to say? Yes. There? It's empathy. Empathetic. I don't know. We know what we mean. Yeah. No one else might, but that they can pick up on things on people. But um, yeah. Anyway, that's gone off track a little bit. But yes, it's quite interesting. The whole there's more because I think chiropractic people may think that it's just as adjustments. But we're more of a package of care, aren't we? Adjustment may be our main tool. That we it's, it's one of our tools, certainly. But, but it's so much more. I mean, a lot of us do soft tissue therapy. Yeah. 
Um, some chiropractors do dry needling, which is like a Western form of acupuncture. I think most of us prescribe exercises, yeah. which are really important for rehabilitation. Posture advice, lifestyle advice. Definitely, all of that stuff. And just the way we talk to patients. I mean, I don't know about you, but I have several elderly patients. They come in and I get the impression they just want someone to talk to them and just listen to them. Yeah. Nice to them. And I think, I think that's, I guess, where we have, I mean, I I don't know what your appointment times are. Mine are about 20 minutes. Yeah, mine are Um, usually 15 as standard, but longer if they need them. Yeah, and, and I have some patients that I... Well, I miss it. I quite like talking to them as well. And I know we won't be out of the room in half an hour. And <laughs> I've just given up trying now. Um, but I think because we have got that little bit of time that you yes. can have the... And I, it's, I guess it's part of the, the, my job that I enjoy as much as I enjoy the actual, I guess, the clinical side of the treating and working out what's wrong and getting people better is the actual interaction with people and, yes. and, and seeing how they are. And I guess we have time to do that in the, you know, you make time for people or... yes we do I mean we don't we don't have any pressure to be in and out within what is it seven minutes for GPs or five minutes or I don't know yeah I don't know how they do it I don't know how they do it difficult job being a GP I think yeah sounds too stressful for my liking (laughs) (laughs) um but yes we have that time then I guess maybe that gives us a fuller picture or can give us a fuller picture of people's lives of yes stuff that may be cool and I often find the conversations I have about people about how was your weekend what did you do blah blah blah, blah mm-hmm. that will come out there oh but do you know what every time that you've come in that you've gone and seen your mother or stayed at that place or driven that mm-hmm. far you've had your problem so maybe that's something to do with which wouldn't come out if you didn't have that time yes to yeah, talk. that's very true yeah um because I think this, I was, I've, um, we have a few osteopaths working here and I went to, and they have a CPD group. They meet up every two months and do some hours yeah. of CPD. And I went to talk to them as part of that CPD, which was, was really interesting, actually. Um, and a lot of them have much longer appointments, sort of half okay. an hour, 40 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were saying the same thing of, of being, having that time to talk to people. Yes. Was, was useful. Um, we had the whole discussion of what's the difference between a chiropractor and an osteopath as well. We decided. <laughs> what was the conclusion? Not a lot. <laughs> yeah. Generally. Well, myself and Mel Harrison, who is the oste- one of the osteopaths here, we've discussed this a few times and written a blog on it and that, and we've basically come up with that we're more or less the same and that we treat the same things that we might have a slightly different philosophy behind what we're doing perhaps. Yeah, but I wouldn't say that all chiropractors share that. It's just no. a historical thing, isn't it? But then actually we've treated each other and our treatments were very similar in terms of technique. But then I think from what we were saying when I was talking to these other osteopaths as well, is it that Mel does perhaps more adjusting or manipulations, they call them, whereas we call them adjustments. Yeah. Then, and a lot of osteopaths tend to do more soft tissue work and less manipulations. That may be true. But then, but then it varies again, from one to the other. So. But then it's like chiropractors, you know, we could stand next to someone who does a different type of chiropractic different because we so if you're listening not a chiropractor we have what's the types of chiropractic so you have diversified mm-hmm. which is kind of what we are I guess isn't it Would that's what we learn mainly yeah. yes so uh, it's and then you have sacral occipital technique which is yes. how do you have how to describe that I should know how to say that and I can't think of how to describe it in non-chiropractic terms 
it's very gentle, isn't it? It's very much gently aligning the pelvis with... But they can use part of diversified as well. Of course they do, yeah. yes, exactly. And then, and then you there's have... a lot of cranial work with it as well. Which I, I don't do any cranial work. Do you do cranial work? Sometimes for headache patients. I do a bit of jaw work, but I don't do anything with actual cranial particularly. Yes, I mean, it's not, it's not. not very specific what I do, but it's just <laughs> no. if there's a lot of tightness around the jaw muscles and some of the muscles um, in the head, yeah. then that can contribute to headaches. So then I would do that. And then you have, what else do you have? Gonstead. Yes. Quite a different form. But, um, Activator. Activator. Drop. That's Thompson, isn't it? Thompson drop, yes. So basically, these are just, if you're not a chiropractor, there's a lot of words that probably mean nothing to you. But um, there's lots of different... Lots of different thera- different techniques, I guess, in chiropractic, and I tend to use a bit of all of them. All yes, of so do I. I'll just um, use whatever seems right for the patient. Exactly. Some chiropractors will do more of one technique than the other, which yeah. usually works well. Um, but that does make then, if you go and see, say, a chiropractor does a lot of sacral occipital technique, that mm. might make, or a McTimony chiropractor, for instance, that would make them look very different, perhaps, if you watched our treatment side by side. Yes. But yet. We're all still chiropractors. Yes. So that's very confusing. I don't know how well I've explained that. But, yeah, so it's always difficult to answer what's the difference between this therapy and this therapy because there's so much range in what each type of therapist does. Exactly. Oh. <laughs> <That was laughs> well, it's just uh, people use different techniques according to their personal preferences. In my mind, people should be aware of lots of different techniques and yeah. use them on each individual patient according to the patient's needs. It shouldn't be about what technique you like as a practitioner. No. It's about what's going to work for the patient. And That's also, yeah, I would see it like a toolbox, which tool exactly. today. But And also, as I found myself a few years ago, if you use one adjustment technique a lot, you tend to injure yourself. <laughs> That can happen. I, I, I hurt my wrist quite badly doing a lot of um, technical term for chiropractic, coming up double phenar, prone thoracic adjusting. Oh, right. Um, I, I had to wear wrist support for two weeks whenever Oops. I wasn't practicing. <laughs> now I'm mixing it up and doing some cross bilateral as well. <laughs> Good. Um, anyway, that's by the by. Um, excellent. Right, let me ask you the questions I ask everyone. So what is the best health tip or piece of advice that you've been ever given by somebody oh that's not an easy one actually um probably it's more of a psychological one that one. okay it's about stress and okay. how to deal with stress so when it comes to stress um if you're sort of anxious about something mm. I think I and other people should ask themselves one thing can they change it if mm. they can change it, yeah. then do so. Do it yeah. step by step. Don't mm. get stressed in the process. If they can't change it, why worry about it? Yeah. You've got no control. So that, for me, if I have that mindset, it even if I'm really stupidly busy, I've got a gazillion things to do, mm. it stops me getting all stressed about it, and then I don't feel the negative effects of stress. Along the same lines of that, if you have a particular stressful event, like 
you're really nervous about something because mm. you're presenting at a big conference or you've got some big sports event yeah. or or something that's even sort of less pleasant than that mm. you always know that every day has six o'clock yeah you know, basically you know it's going to end yeah and it's always going to end and you're always going to get past that point so again you know you don't need to be super stressed about it because it will end end at a certain time um and that for me keeps me sort of mentally or psychologically okay without being so susceptible to stress that's quite a good one I might try some of that um (laughs) and because there's some things you can't change and so why worry about them exactly a lot of things that and I've got better at this of worrying about things that haven't happened yet oh it's the same thing yeah and most of them never happen. And yet exactly. I know before, I used, used to spend so much time worrying about stuff that never happened. Or and you've got no control about whether they're going to happen or exactly. not. Exactly. And, then, worry. and then, then you realise, oh, I was really worried about that. And it didn't, it didn't even occur. So I wasted exactly. all that energy worrying about that. But I, exactly. I do that much less now. Um, there is something that you can change. Just stop worrying and get on and do it. That's do it. it. Because often it's the decision to make the change that's hard. But yes. once you've done the decision, actually, it gets easier. Yes, because then you're working at it. Even if it takes a while, step by step, you're going in the right direction. And mentally, that helps because you know that you're doing something about it. You're getting there. Yeah. Um, is there one piece of advice you regularly give your patients? Go exercise, basically. <laughs> um, and this is, this is the, a big problem really because patients think I mean go and exercise in the gym well no I don't I I then qualify to them and say look I want you to exercise but what exercise did you used to enjoy when you were a kid and then they sort of list something some people really liked football some like dance based stuff some like cricket and I say to them why don't you try and go back to what you really enjoy? And it doesn't matter what it is, mm. just find something that you actually enjoy doing exercise-wise and do that because that way you're going to stick at it. Yeah. Your body's going to get all the exercise benefits from it, but you're not going to be bored out of your skull by going to the gym if that's not... Yeah, because if you don't like going to the gym, you'll never go. Or whatever exactly. exercise it is. Well, you'll go for three months and then you'll just not go and... It would just be pointless. Whereas I've had patients go back to playing netball and they've got this whole big back to netball campaign going on. Um, and you can find netball um, teams that are sort of for the over 35s or 40s. Yeah. And people are enjoying that. Some of the older guys are going to play walking football and just anything, whatever people enjoy. This is what you love. Exactly. exactly. And then what is the unhealthiest habit or guilty pleasure that you have (laughs) deciding that I haven't got time to eat because I'd rather play tennis and (laughs) eating nothing but cereal bars and dark chocolate probably (laughs) I remember you living a lot of cereal quite a lot when we were at university together yeah that was bad because some of that was too sugary yeah I changed my eating habits since then and stopped eating anywhere near as much sugar and the cereal bars I eat now I make sure they're the sort of low sugar they've been healthy healthy ones ones. exactly the ones that are high in protein 
sort of moderate in fat and low in sugar. Not but the ones that are essentially Mars bars in a, in a healthy way. Oh, no, 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 definitely not those. But yes, it's just like skipping proper meals sometimes and just thinking, ah, I've got time to eat. Oh gosh, well, you know what I'm like if that happens with me. Yes. <laughs> oh, I don't Unbearable. Cook. I'm hungry. I need food now. I'm going to be really ratty until I get fed. <laughs> it's funny because it's true. I don't cope well when I'm hungry. It's my answer to almost any problem in life. Have something to eat and have a nap. And then see how you feel afterwards. Don't make a decision when you're hungry. It's like, don't speak to Rosie when Rosie's hungry unless you want your head bitten off. Yeah. I'd like to try and say I'm never like that, but... Maybe you're not anymore. No, I'm still not good if I'm hungry. But now I get less grumpy and more just go... Why do I feel really faint? I haven't <laughs> eaten for two hours. <laughs> just need to eat. I'm like a like hamster or something. I just need to keep constantly eating. Well, they have it in their pouches, don't they? Yeah, anyway. I wouldn't recommend that. <laughs> I don't know how we've gotten to that. Like a little bird, they have to eat all the time. That sounds better than... That sounds better than a hamster with hamster pouches. <laughs> it does. It does. Anyway, Nicole, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been really interesting and entertaining. Thank you so Um, much for having me. You're welcome. And if you're a chiropractor or a physio or an osteopath and you want to know more about um, Nicole's seminars, which are brilliant, um, neuroseminars, is it .co.uk? .co.uk, yes. .co.uk. And you do them in the UK and also parts of Europe as well, don't you? Yes, yes. Well, it's truly international. It is quite international. Which is brilliant. September. Looking forward to that one. What are you doing in September in Sweden? Which one? Um, it's the muscle tone and posture one. It's the basic introduction to functional neurology. It's really good. But can I just say, do the pre-reading? Yes, do the pre-reading. Because <laughs> if you don't, like me, or you kind of perhaps half-heartedly do it, I don't know why I would ever do that. And then you turn up going, oh. I remember that word. And by the time you've worked out what that word meant, you're like, I don't know. So do the pre-reading, but it's really, really useful and interesting stuff for, for to know and for your clinic. Excellent. Anyway, thank you ever so much for everyone listening. Goodbye. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Total Health Podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you need any information or links from the show, they'll be in the show notes. And if you have enjoyed it and you're a regular listener, maybe you'd leave us a five-star review. I'd be really grateful. Or perhaps you'd share it with a friend or subscribe so you can hear our future episodes. Thank you so much. Goodbye.